0: This morning for a scripture reading, I'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. And the first few verses we see looking ahead to future glory, and then uh, there at the end, towards the end we see God's everlasting love revealed to us in giving His only Son. Romans 8, verses 18 through 39. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all,
1: invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first first book in Scripture, the book of Genesis, chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. After quite a number of months of kind of hiatus from the book of Genesis. We'll be back here at least for the immediate future. And uh, this passage is one long story. I honestly tried several times to break it up into chunks because it just seemed too long to cover. Uh, But I kept simmering it on the pot, and hopefully it'll be digestible in 30, 35 minutes. We'll find out here after a bit. Just a quick reminder of where we are In the story of Genesis, I think it's very important for us to remember that unlike the passage uh, that Brother Jason just read in Romans 8, which comes after the death and resurrection of Jesus, comes after Pentecost, where the gospel of Jesus Christ and how God is going to redeem the world is so clearly put on display, this story comes a very long time prior to the clear revelation of God's plan of redemption. So it's very early in the redemptive history of the world, and not much is known yet about how God is going to sort out this broken world, how God is going to sort out broken humanity. Very little is known, and yet God is faithfully telling the story, working out his story in his people's lives, his chosen people's lives, so that when Jesus comes, we will have a context from which to understand this death and resurrection of Jesus and its implications for humanity's redemption. So this is very early in the whole kind of historic redemptive narrative. It's not so early in the book of Genesis. We've already looked at the story of our creator God, how he made the world and how it was a good creation. We've learned in Genesis chapter three how things got broken, and why this once beautiful good world is in such a mess. We've heard the initial promise that God, recognizing humanity and the world is in a bad situation, we've heard the initial promise that God's going to do something about it. And the one who seemed to come out of this triumphant, Satan, that serpent, he will be crushed. It's coming. God said, way back in Genesis chapter 3 already, we see the continued um, evil, the, the rampant growth of evil in the world until God finally judges the world, spares the human race through one man, Noah. And then how he makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and he calls out of the land of Haran a people through whom he wants to put his glory on display in the world. And as we follow the story of Israel, we're going to find that that doesn't work out so terribly well. The weak link is not God. The weak link is the people of God. And this people of God is being developed here in this particular segment of the story of Genesis. We now have the life of a grandson of the father of faith, a grandson of Abraham, And this man, Jacob, has been in conflict with his twin brother. And because of that intense conflict, he fled back to his mother's homeland, which incidentally was Abraham's homeland, where God first came to Abraham and says, Get out, I've got a land for you. And now here, Abraham's grandson is running back there to try to save his own life. So, in a sense, he's been in exile, away from the promised land, back in the old land for 20 years. And he's a very different man than he was 20 years before when he went into exile. In this story today, we'll see it in six basic stages. Uh, If we were to do a play of this, there would be six basic acts to this play. The first one is we explore Jacob's reasons for leaving. So he's married, he's got uh, really technically four wives and a whole host of children and a huge number of uh, livestock, flocks and herds. And he's talking about moving. He's talking about leaving. What is it that prompts Jacob to say, I'm out of here? The second stage is Jacob talking to his wives about this one. Okay, He kind of makes up his mind. But now this is the homeland of his wives. This is where they've grown up. This is their father's farm. This is all they know. And we'll see him giving his reasons to his wives and how they come along and agree to the plan to leave. And then in the third stage, we see Jacob's flight and his father-in-law's pursuit. Okay, the chase is on. And then in the fourth stage, we see the conversation between Jacob and Laban when they finally get, to get back together. And 20 years of pent-up anger rush out onto the scene. It's not exactly a pretty scene, but it's candid. And then in the fifth stage, we see they come to an agreement and they draft a basic treaty of non-aggression. And let me just warn you, this isn't a peace treaty where everybody's happy now and all's good. This is a, you stay there, I stay here, and it'll be okay. And then in the very concluding verse of the passage, we see their parting, how they part ways. This specific story, this mini exodus, we might call it, is surrounded in the biblical narrative of redemptive history with other such events. So prior to this one, there is Abraham's exodus when he is called out of his home to go to the land God is calling him to occupy. Now Abraham's grandson is back there and he's packing up all his possessions and all his people, getting ready to return back to the promised land, back to Canaan. Looking forward uh, into the next book of the Bible, we see that this little mini exodus foreshadows what we typically think of when we use the term exodus. And that's when these thousands and possibly even millions of people who were in slavery in Egypt, Jacob's descendants, have an exodus almost identical to the one Jacob himself has here coming from Haran back to the promised land. This time they're starting in Egypt and God delivers them in a dramatic way through some of the very same means. The call of God comes to Jacob in the way that it will come to Moses. Jacob Jacob explains his situation and the call of God to his wives in such a way they agree to his proposal to leave. Moses also has a process to undergo to persuade the people of Israel that it's time to leave the only home they've known and go to a promised land. And, you know, it's a bit like us. Most of us are pretty happy. Rockingham County is mostly what we've known. To think of moving to a promised land Oh, but wait, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. There is a new heaven and a new earth. And sometimes we have to be stirred out of that. That was Jacob's challenge to his wife. It was Moses' challenge to the people in Egypt. It's a challenge for us today as well. Uh, Jacob's large family flees from Laban. And 400 years later, this vast multitude of his descendants will flee from Pharaoh. Uh, Jacob plunders Laban as he goes. And his descendants will plunder Pharaoh and his people. Laban is forced to let Pharaoh go. It's not Laban's wishes that they go. Pharaoh is forced to let the people of Israel go. It's not his wish that they go until finally he comes to rest with it. And I guess he rests in the bottom of the Red Sea. Jacob finds that some of Haran's old pagan culture has come along with him on the way out of Haran. And, oh, we find in the story of Israel that Israel may have left Egypt, but Egypt has not necessarily left Israel. In both, both stories, there is a watershed moment in which there's no going back. No going back. In both, and I want you to note this, particularly as we read and as we look at this story, in both of these stories, God is the one who initiates the journey to the promised land, He's the one who calls them out. He's the one who promises to lead them to the promised land. He's the one who says, I will be with you. I will go with you. And he's the one who accompanies them on that journey and sees to it that eventually they arrive in the promised land. So at the center of each of these stories, let me back up and looking still further ahead, This story is a prophetic glimpse of the glorious exodus that believers find in Jesus, the ultimate Israel, the one who plundered the power of evil and leads us out from the bondage of Satan and evil toward Canaan, toward the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ will reign supremely and we ourselves will be at rest in the new heavens and the new earth. At the center of each of these stories, At the very center is God. It's not really our story. It's the story of God who out of his infinite grace comes to us, comes to his people in the place we find ourselves and he says, up, go and I will go with you. He said that to you And if you have not yet gone, he's saying it to you today. Arise and go. Go to the promised land, and I will be with you. Let's read the story. It's a long story. You can follow along if you like. You can listen if you care to. Uh, I will not make a recommendation to you. It's long, but fascinating. Listen for the six stages, and I want you to note particularly how often credit is given to God for what's occurring in each of these different scenes. Genesis 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. There's stage one. Now stage two. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in and Aram to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me And driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me. So that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying be careful not to say anything to Jacob. Either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks what was torn by wild beasts i did not bring to you i bore the loss of it myself from my hand you required it whether stolen by day or stolen by night there i was by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sheep fled from my eyes my sleep fled from my eyes these 20 years i have been in your house i served you 14 years for your two daughters and 6 years for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? For these my daughters, or for their children whom they have born. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. They took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager-Sahadatha, but Jacob called it Galiat. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Gilead and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness. And the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me. I'm sorry, that I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's quickly move through these six sections. And again, I want you to notice how God intervenes and how God works on behalf of his people in each of these six phases of this exodus. I want you to consider how that same God is at work in your own exodus, in your own journey from slavery, from bondage to sin and to Satan In your journey toward the promised land he's given you his kingdom it's a now but not quite yet we have not fully arrived we're in the wilderness on the journey so first there's the trouble and the call of God the sons of Laban are beginning to turn against Jacob so it was never a really pleasant kind of context Never a really delightful family relationship. But now the rumors are beginning to fly. And Jacob is hearing of a coming revolt. Now some Bible scholars actually believe that these sons likely were born after Jacob arrived. And that maybe these girls were the only daughters of Laban. And so Laban had kind of given away the farm to Jacob. And now these young sons come along. And they say, wait a minute, we should be the heirs. Looks like Jacob's getting everything. And the rumors are starting to flow. In addition, we see Laban's attitude is changing toward Jacob. Again, never exactly a pleasant one. One always where they were scheming and fighting, trying to get the best of each other. And Jacob was doing his part of that. Jacob wasn't a saint He was a deceiver. He was deceptive. He was subtle and sneaky. And yet the air is getting thick. The tension is rising. And you can sense the fear that Jacob has that this is all going to unravel. And it's going to be a disaster. And into that situation, the voice of God comes. God speaks to Jacob and says, Jacob, it's time. Pack up go back to the land of your fathers. I will be with you. I will be with you. Now Jacob's been here for 20 years. He's been in exile as it were from home for 20 years. Things have changed. God is saying exile is over. It's time to go home. The story of Exodus and homecoming is always the story of God working on the behalf of his people. And that's true in this story. So Jacob gets this message from God, but he's got his wives, he's got his family, and of course his father in law. His wives cannot be taken from their home without their consent. So, while he's out working one day, he invites his wives out into the field. Hey, why don't you come out here? Let's have a conversation. Away from eavesdropping, away from the peeking eyes. Just come out here in the field. And you see how candidly, Jacob lays out this story to Leah and to Rachel. He makes his case for leaving. He says, I see the declining favor of your father, but God is with me. I served your father well, but he cheated me out of my wages, but God did not permit him to harm me. He changed my wages 10 times, but God compensated for this and saw to it that I had what I needed to prosper. And now God has spoken. God has spoken very clearly. This God of my father. And you see how he contrasts Laban to the God of his fathers. And he says, God has now spoken. I must honor the voice of God. And God is saying, I am God. I want you to rise and go. I want you to return to the land of your kindred and I will be with you. I don't know if Jacob knew what was coming or not, but they basically concurred and they said, you're right. You're exactly right. His wives are in complete agreement with him. They said, you know, we really are like foreigners in our father's house now. In fact, he sold us And you can almost feel the bitter edge. Dad sold us. They haven't forgotten. But it's not just that. Not only did he sell us, but he took the benefits that he derived in that sale and he has spent it all on himself. He's consumed it. We say, well, that kind of makes sense. Well, not in that context. Because what a father earned in the sale of a bride or in giving his daughter to someone else for a wife, the dowry that he took was to be held in trust. So that if the husband died or if the husband abandoned his daughter, these funds were to be there for their care. So has dad been looking out for his daughters? Nope, saw them as property. Sold them? didn't keep those resources in trust for their care in the event Jacob was a bad egg and walked off on them, abandoned them, or whether he died, they would be taken care of? Nope. The only place they had for their ongoing care was with Jacob. Dad sold him off, and he spent all the money. He's regarding, they regard him as foreigners, he said. We're foreigners. Our father sold us and devoured the bride price. So, hey, whatever this God who has looked after you, whatever He says to you, let's do it. Let's go. It seems as though God was at work in this phase of the journey as well. Because the story of Exodus and the story of a homecoming is always the story of God working on behalf of His people. So they left. And this had to be quite a procession. Laban, it says, is gone shearing his sheep. Now, interestingly enough, there are uh, clay tablets that have been found in that part of the world. And they talk about sheep shearing as being a three to ten day process with as many as 300 men shearing sheep. So we're talking about this is a big ordeal. And most likely Laban still had plenty of flocks. And so he's away, a distance away from his home, and there's this big event going on where they're busy shearing sheep. And uh, Jacob says, this is the time. He's busy, he's tied up, he's away. We need to go now if we're going to get a head start. And it's interesting that for the first time, and maybe even for maybe one of the few times we see Jacob and Label in deep mutual response. And the language of scripture here shows a very, very deep solidarity between Jacob and Rachel. And we miss it, except in the footnotes here in the ESV. Uh, scripture says that Jacob stole the heart of Laban. Now, if we use that term today, somebody stole someone else's heart, we say they captured their affection. And their devotion and their loyalty. Here that, that term stealing someone's heart means that they have you have deceived them. That you pulled a trick on them, deceived them. And so the language is simply Jacob stole the heart of Laban, Rachel stole her father's gods. So both of them are in concert stealing from dad. Both of them have this deceptive skill. And now they are standing together, deploying it against father, father father-in-law. Rachel probably knowing about Jacob's. uh, Jacob not knowing what Rachel has done. Another point of interest here is, what's the significance of these household gods? Again, there are tablets that have been found, ancient Nuzi tablets from that Mesopotamian region. And in those tablets, it becomes evident that the way we have deeds for property, the way we have written wills for estates, gods represented the ownership of an estate. So the family's gods, the person in possession of those family's gods was the heir to the estate, had the right to the estate. And so she says, hey, dad, you ripped him off. We're taking the deed. We're taking the will with us. Okay, which begins to explain why Laban is so upset and concerned about these gods and wants to be sure he gets this covenant made eventually to assure himself that Jacob's not coming back to claim the estate, even though he can't find the gods. So Rachel's being sharp cookie. She says, we're going to just send the message home to dad. Of course, once they're gone, it doesn't take too long for Laban to get the word. Jacob, his household, his flocks and herds are gone. And he pursues them. And the language used of his pursuit is military language. Uh, It's the same terms that are used when Abraham goes goes after the people that have taken Lot. It's used throughout the Old Testament uh, for military journeys. He pursued, he overtook, he pitched his tents, setting up for battle. Violence is looming. Laban has every intent to deal with Jacob. But God, who has already said to Jacob... I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you But going back. I'm going to be with you in times of trouble. I will be with you. That God comes to Laban and says, don't touch him. Don't touch him. And there are many facets of our own exodus and journey through the wilderness in which we find ourselves feeling very, very, vulnerable but the God who says to you I will be with you also says to those who seek your harm they're my people don't touch them because the story of Exodus and the story of homecoming is the story of God a God who works on behalf of his people and then of course Laban comes into the camp, and I'm sure the camp is filled with terror. Jacob, absolutely terrified, and what a relief when he encounters only words. Of course, the words aren't exactly friendly. They're a bit hostile. Laban berates Jacob for taking his daughters away and for stealing his gods, and he tells Jacob very, very explicitly, it's in my power to do you harm which I think implies that was his intent. It's in my power to do you harm, but God. But God said, no. Your God. The God of your father, Abraham. What about those gods? Jacob says, listen, you search everything I have. Everything I have. And if you find anything that rightfully belongs to you, the person who has it will die. Oh, if only he knew who had them. So here he puts Rachel's life on the line. And Jacob, again, he goes through everything. He goes through every tent, rummages through every bag, unturned, upturns everything, completely thorough in his search. Finally comes into Rachel's tent, and Rachel says, hey, it's that time of the month, please allow me to remain seated. What's interesting here is Laban cannot conceive of Rachel, who is impure and unclean, sitting on gods in that condition. it's, It's a statement of withering contempt for the gods of Mesopotamia that she's in this condition, sitting on gods. The gods are impure, they're defiled. So what? Just a very bold statement of contempt for the gods of Mesopotamia. And of course, Laban can't conceive of it, doesn't ask her to move, she's seated on her saddlebags from the camel that she was riding. And so the gods remain unfound. And Jacob says, Now it's my turn. Listen, Laban. You've been through everything, absolutely everything. Just pile up the stuff that you found that belongs to you. Pile it up right here, right in front of my witnesses. Let's look at it. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the 20 years of anger just roll out of Jacob where he describes to him in clear language exactly what he's done to him. You pursued me. You ransacked my possessions. You didn't find a single thing that I took from you. I've taken nothing from you the entire 20 years I've worked for you. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Even your daughters, I worked for them. I paid a huge price for these women. And you've changed my wages 10 times. And I adapted every time. And yet, I prospered. Everything I have here, I have gained lawfully, rightfully. You can't find anything here that belongs to you. If it weren't for God, and His looking out for me, His protecting me, His defending me, if it weren't for the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, if He had not been on my side, I would have walked away just as I came. Empty-handed, And alone. Laban, if it was up to you, I'd have left by myself alone. That was your intent. God has protected me. God has blessed me. So what are you trying to do? He's pleading for him just to stop. Rest the case. Leave it alone. But you know, that is also the story of an exodus and a homecoming a home going if it were up to the one holding us captive we would leave alone but no God invariably allows his people to kind of loot the enemy as it were and he leads captivity captive gives gifts to men and brings them into a flourishing journey in his kingdom because the story of Exodus and homecoming is the story of God working on the behalf of his people. Laban realizes he's beat, and so he says, let's make a deal. I Haven't found my gods. My whole estate back in Mesopotamia, back in Haran, is vulnerable. Let's make a deal. Let's set up these markers and make an agreement that I won't come this way towards you, and you won't come back that way toward me. For any purpose of harm. So, even if you have the gods somewhere, uh, I don't have to be afraid that you're going to come back and reclaim the estate. And you don't have to worry about me coming after you again. So, this isn't a great family peacemaking, everybody in peace and love. This is a we're just going to draw a line, we're going to mark it out. This treaty would keep them apart. This treaty would recognize them now as not the same people, but as two separate peoples. And this treaty that's summarized in this Mizpah benediction that in the King James says, the Lord watched between me and thee when we're absent one from another, that gets inscribed on all kinds of hallmark cards and even on wedding rings and all these kinds of things. Folks, this is a truce. A truce at best. This is not a warm, fuzzy, good kind of word, good kind of language. It's a truce. And it basically says listen, you don't trust me, I don't trust you, put this line in the sand. And if you do something you're not supposed to do, I'm not here to watch you. I can't watch over you because we've agreed we can't coexist. Let God deal with you. It's not exactly the kind of relationship you're looking for in a marriage, probably. But this is the watershed moment. Jacob says, honestly, you couldn't drag me back there again. I'm out. I'm out for good. I'm going that way. No problem. Yep, let's do the deal. I have no desire whatsoever to go back. And it's interesting that often these kind of journeys of exodus have those moments in them. Periods of time in which we struggle. We struggle. We struggle. And it's not that the struggle doesn't continue at some point and in some fashion, but we know we've crossed the watershed line. There's no going back. I've gone too far to turn back now. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. There's that watershed moment in any exodus at which there is no turning back. God has brought us this far. God has helped us. God has spared us. God has led us. God has been with us. How could we go back? The same is true here for Jacob. Laban promises not to pursue him again. And they bind themselves to this covenant in a meal. And I want you to note this foreshadowing of this watershed moment. This is a foreshadowing of the watershed moment of all of history. When God finally defeat Satan through the cross and resurrection. Where hostages are set free, captives are set free. The watershed battle is over. As Jesus utters these final words, it is finished. And that story, that moment in history is sealed in our own hearts by the work of the Spirit. And we tell the story In the meal that Jesus himself served. And we still eat. In remembrance. For you see the story of Exodus. And homecoming. Is the story of God. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. A gracious and loving God. A righteous and holy God. A faithful God. God, working on behalf of his people. Jacob has been delivered, they go to bed and sleep. In the morning, Laban kisses his grandchildren and his daughters, blesses them, and departs. Jacob is left with his family and his flocks. A people who have been called, a people who have been delivered, a people who have been guided. A people who have been defended by none other than God himself. Now Jacob is not home yet. And we'll see in the very next chapter, he's got Esau ahead of him. Which was the reason he left to start with. And you know most of us would like these vacuum tubes from which to leave the land of exile to the promised land completely free from any impact by our environment or relationships or context we get saved and whoosh just in the heaven happy land forever we 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 love to think of it in that way the problem is it's a pathway a journey through the wilderness and even if we've seen the watershed moments we've got our own esaus coming up but remember what is the same is that every story of Exodus and homecoming is a story of a faithful God. The God who called him out, the God who led him safely, the God who protected him in this conflict with Laban, his father-in-law, that same God is going to be there in the next chapter when he faces his brother who sought to kill him 20 years before. That same God will be there. Because these stories of exile, back to the exodus and homecoming, is the story of a faithful God. And that same God is our God. Let's have a song, please.